you know, we have to work all the details out with the church. So anyway, just want you to know that. Okay, let's pray, and then we're going to open up to Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word that we can open it up and we can find solutions to our problems, but more than that, we can look and discover that you have a bigger plan, and it's uh, that uh, this world does not revolve around us. It revolves around you and your plan, and we can be part of it. And as we get into your will and we get, become part of your plan, that uh, our lives uh, become focused and uh, we are under your care and you take care of us physically and spiritually and psychologically, emotionally and every other way as we continue to do your work. So Lord, now we ask that you open your word to us, uh, help us to uh, comprehend it and uh, then put it in action. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now I'm very hot. So if I'm hot, I know it's getting hot in here, so I don't know what we can do. Is either pull the plug? Huh? No, 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 no. I mean, I can just tell that it's hot in here. I don't know how hot you are. Huh? Oh. Is everybody comfortable? Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. Um, okay, here we go. We're in chapter 19. We're going to begin in verse 11. And today we will look at Jesus' last parable before he enters the city of Jerusalem. Okay? Basically, this is his last teaching before uh, he faces his final life on earth. And so in verses 1 through 10, we have the story of Zacchaeus. And that encounter with Zacchaeus <laughs> takes place in the city of Jericho. And now Jesus gets back on the road, and we pick up at verse 11. It says, and now as they, that's the crowd, heard these things, what things? Uh, the things that Jesus had uh, dealt with, uh, the things that Jesus and Zacchaeus had dealt with, and about Zacchaeus' salvation. Now when they had heard these things, he spoke another parable. Now why did he speak the parable? For two reasons. Look. Reason number one, because he was near Jerusalem. He had one last thing he wanted to say to them. Reason number two, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. There's great anticipation that when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he will declare himself to be the Messiah and overthrow the Roman government and set up God's kingdom on earth. And what Jesus has to do he has to correct this erroneous understanding because that's not what he's going to do when he gets to Jerusalem. So he gets on the road from Jericho and he moves toward Jerusalem, only has 15 miles to go, and he has to correct this understanding that what they anticipate is not going to happen when they arrive at Jerusalem. So what did they anticipate? Well, it tells us in verse 11 that the kingdom of God would come immediately. Now, when you study Luke's gospel, we, under, we discover that Luke understands the kingdom of God as coming in two stages. The first stage is when Jesus is baptized and is, embarks on his ministry, and he says, the kingdom of God has come among you. It's here at hand right now. That's the first stage. Uh, and that's why Jesus can say to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. That's why he heals people. That's why he opens their eyes and, and uh, he forgives people and gives them the Holy Spirit. All those kinds of things are the first stage. But Luke, and that's the kingdom of God in sort of a microcosm. 
We're getting a little glimpse into what the kingdom is going to be like. God invades time and space right now. And he can do it right now if he wanted to. He could come right into this room in a special way. And guess what? None of us would be sitting up. We'd all be on the floor. He could come into this room right now and heal everyone who's sick in this room. And when Jesus walked the earth and people asked him to, asked him to heal them, guess what he did? He healed them. And in that sense, the kingdom of God broke in through the ministry of Jesus in a temporary way, in a small way. We'll get a glimpse of what the kingdom is going to be like. But Luke also sees a future aspect of the kingdom when the kingdom will come in its fullness. So you have two stages. The present stage, when he offers forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit and occasionally heals people, things like that. And then the future stage, when everybody's going to be raised, there's going to be a judgment, and he's going to set up his kingdom of God on earth. But he wasn't going to do that when he got to Jerusalem right there. Now he comes to the parable. So he's going to correct that understanding. Watch the parable. Look at verse 12. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a country to receive for himself, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. He tells about a nobleman. Now, this is how kingdoms were received. Notice what he says. Did you see what he said? A nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. In Bible times, this is how kingdoms were received. And Jesus' audience is familiar with this kind of practice. Because when Herod the Great died, remember Herod? One of his sons, Archelaus, was going to be named king. But you know what he had to do to get his kingdom? He had to go to Rome. He had to go to a far country. And there he received his kingdom. And then he came back to Palestine and he was king. So when Jesus talks about someone going and receiving a kingdom and coming back, uh, these people understand it. And notice that word went. The nobleman went, you see. Now look at the next infinitives. You know what an infinitive is? Look. Went to receive. Look. To receive. And then look at the end of verse 12. And to return. Now, why is Jesus telling this parable? Because the people who are traveling with him, the crowd that's traveling with him, think what? Into verse 11. King of God is going to come immediately when he gets to Jerusalem. And guess what Jesus is doing? He's dispelling that false idea. And he tells the story of a nobleman who goes to a far country to receive the kingdom and then return. Now, <clears throat> We know that this parable refers cryptically to Jesus. It's not about a nobleman at all. It's a parable, it's a story, but he, Jesus is going to apply it to himself. Does that make sense? Jesus is not noble in the sense that he's rich or part of the elite, but Luke tells us back in chapter 1, he had a noble birth. He came from the line of King David. Now I want you to notice in verse... 12, where the nobleman goes to receive the kingdom. He went into a what? What kind of country? Oh, far country. Do you see that word far country? Yeah, okay. Now, look at verse 11. Now, when they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was what? 
near Jerusalem. Do you see the difference? Near Jerusalem. Far country. Near Jerusalem. Far country. They thought, well, he's near Jerusalem. He's going to set up his kingdom. Guess what Jesus said? Oh, no. It's not going to happen near. In order to get your kingdom, guess what you have to do? You have to go to a far country. So when he comes to Jerusalem, he's not going to receive his kingdom. It's going to be from Jerusalem that he goes to a far country to receive his kingdom. And then once he receives it, he'll come back to Jerusalem where he will rule. What's that far country that he's going to go to to receive his kingdom? Heaven. And he's going to depart from Jerusalem for that far country through his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And Luke will end his book, chapter 24, with Jesus ascending, going to the far country to receive his kingdom. And then one day he's going to come back and he's going to rule. Does that make sense? So he's trying to dispel their erroneous ideas about the kingdom arriving at Jerusalem. So, he's going to go to a far country and he's going to receive the kingdom. Then he's going to come back, he's going to return, and he's going to rule. Between going and coming back, guess what there is? There's a great big gap. <laughs> there is an interim period. There is a period of delay. Now remember... Luke is writing this book, 60 AD? How long has Jesus been gone? 30 years. Yeah, 30 years. We're reading this book in 2009, how long has he been gone? See, he's gone to receive the kingdom, but guess what? And he's going to come back, but there is a delay in his coming back. So Luke's audience reading this book in 60 A.D. are saying, well, how long is it going to be? And Luke is assuring them that he will come back and he will reign. Now, when Jesus says it in 30 A.D., he's assuring his disciples that he's not going to take the kingdom or receive the kingdom in Jerusalem. So there's a couple messages that are, that are uh, embedded in this passage that you have to understand what's happening. Does that make sense to you? <coughs> Uh, so he's trying to dispel that he will not receive the kingdom when he gets to Jerusalem. Does he succeed in dispelling that understanding? Next week we're going to talk about the triumphal entry. He gets on the back of a donkey, he goes into Jerusalem, and what do they say? Son of David, save us now! No, he doesn't dispel it at all. It's like they don't even have ears to hear. Uh, but that's what he's trying to do. Now, let's look at the characters in this parable. Look at verse 13. We're going to see some people, and we're going to see some commands. Verse 13. So, he, this nobleman, before he left to get the kingdom, called his ten of his servants, and he delivered unto them ten minas, which was about four months' worth of work. And he said to them, Do business until I return. So he gives each one of these people a portion of uh, of his wealth. Ten servants, ten minas. Right? Each one got one. And he says, uh, while I'm gone, take care of my business. Turn me a profit. 
So when I get back, I can just pick up where I left. I'll be rolling, but at least uh, all my business will have been taken care of. And so these are servants of the master. That's the first group of characters. But there's a second group of characters. Look at verse 14. But his citizens, that would be the ones that he would rule over, hated him. And sent a delegation after him, means as he goes to the far country, saying, we won't have this man rule over us. So you have two groups. One group that's for the master. They're his stewards or his servants. And one group called the citizens who oppose the master. And when he goes to the far country to receive the kingdom, a group of these people follow him. And when they get to the capital city, they say, we don't want this guy to be our king. Now, Jesus' audience was very familiar with this kind of a scenario. Because remember I told you that when King Herod died, Archelaus had to go to Rome? When he went to Rome, guess what? Some of the people he's going to rule, guess what they did? They followed him. <laughs> when he got to Rome, they said, don't put this bum in charge. We don't want this guy to rule over us. We want his brother to rule over us. So what we're seeing here, even though it's a parable, these kinds of things happen on a regular basis. Now remember, in this passage, Jesus is the nobleman, the king. Does he have people who don't want him to rule over them? Can you name a couple? Yeah, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They don't want Jesus to rule over him. They're, they're opposed to Jesus ruling over him. Now, remember that this parable comes right after the Zacchaeus story. Luke puts it there for a reason. He wants us constantly to be looking back at Zacchaeus and looking forward to this event. Looking back and looking forward. When you look back, you see Zacchaeus who shows Jesus hospitality. When you start looking forward, when he goes to receive his kingdom, you have a group that show him hostility. So one, Zacchaeus shows hospitality. One shows hostility. And so this is what Luke wants us to see as we read these passages. Now look at verse 15. Verse 15. Here comes the day of reckoning. The day of reckoning. He's received his kingdom. Now he's already gone to the far country. This nobleman. And so it was that when he returned, <clears throat> there's that word return again, having received the kingdom, would you say this is about the kingdom? Verse 11, kingdom of God. Verse 12, kingdom of God. Verse 15, kingdom. Hold on. And so it was that when he returned, the nobleman returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants, group number one, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten mina. 1,000% profit. Not bad, huh? Not bad. This guy was busy in his master's absence. 
working on behalf of his master. Look at the response, verse 17. <clears throat> and the master said to him, who's now king, by the way, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in the very little with money. I have given authority over ten cities. Because you've been faithful in my absence during that interim, you will now rule with me. I will give you charge of ten cities. Look at verse 18. And the second servant came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also shall be over five cities. 500% profit. This guy's been busy while his master's gone to the far country to receive the kingdom. And what? He was faithful over a little how he used the master's resources. And as a result, how he used the master's resources gained him a share in the rule of the kingdom that the master had received. Now look at verse 20. Then another king. <clears throat> Literally it says, then the other king. And uh, this is the third man. Now there are ten men. I think this third man probably represents the other eight. It could read this way. Then the other eight came. We just don't know. But he's probably representative of the rest. Then the other came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. He's done nothing. The master's been gone. And he's taken the master's resources and he's put it right in the handkerchief. Uh, the sweat cloth, the kind that you see laborers put around their neck and tie so that when the sweat drips from their hair, it falls into the cloth. He took that cloth and he put the money there and he just kept it. Totally inactive. See, once you put something away like that, you don't have to think about it. When I was a kid, I used to put my money in a sock. I asked Harold Thompson the other night if he ever uh, put money in a sock. And Harold said, no, I don't think I've ever done anything like that. Well, when I was a kid, I used to put all my money in a sock and I hid it behind my bed. Is any other crazy person like that? <laughs> so uh, that's what this guy does. And uh, once you do that, guess what? You don't have to think about it. In fact, sometimes you forget about it. Sometimes I would wonder, well, I could use some money. And I forget that I even had that money hidden behind my bed. And sock. But you don't have to think about it anymore. There's no responsibility upon you if you just hide something away. Now, why did he do this? It's a great explanation that the man gives. Look at verse 21. For I feared you because you're an austere man. I hid it away because you're a scary person. You're an austere man. You collect what you do not deposit, you're, also, you're a cheapskate, in other words. You know? I didn't want to lose it. I took a risk and I lost it. You, know? you collect what you did not deposit. That's the kind of person you are. 
You go to a restaurant, you get a couple packs of those sugar things, you put them in here. You can buy anything for that. You can say, here, let me give you some money for that. You take matches and toothpicks and you stick them in your pocket and go home. You, end of the year, you got a whole bunch, you know. You have to, have to, have to use any of your own money. That's the kind of person you are. <laughs> Look, and you reap what you do not sow. You go into the grocery store and eat a grape. You can buy that grape. In other words, I put it in the napkin and didn't invest it because you're a scary guy. And uh, you're a cheapskate and I didn't want to lose your money and all this kind of... So in other words, he gives an explanation or a rationale why he... An excuse, if you will, why he's done nothing during that period of delay. Now, here's my question. Is this third servant telling the truth about the master, or is he only making an excuse? Now, remember that the nobleman represents Jesus. Jesus cheapskate? Now, what do we know about this nobleman? Well, he was going to receive a kingdom. He must have been worthy to receive a kingdom. And we know that he gave the first servant rule over ten cities. That doesn't sound like an austere, cheapskate type person. A scary person. And he gave the other guy rule over five cities. He seems to be a generous person, doesn't he? So what we think is that this third servant is just making an excuse. He's not telling the truth about the master at all. And look at the response. So the master said to him, Well, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. In other words, he's going to use the servant's own words to condemn the servant. And look what he says. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting, now this is his own words, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in a bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? In other words, if I was so scary, why would you hide it in a napkin? You can lose a napkin then you'd really have something to be frightened of. If I was so fearful and as mean as you say, why didn't you put it in a bank? At least it'd be secure, and guess what? I get a few bucks. See, he's using his own words to condemn it. And so with this observation, the master exposes that servant as a liar. The bottom line is once the master left, this guy did nothing. This guy was totally inactive. He didn't even do what was minimal. Now remember, the master gave the money and he said, do business. Make a profit. He gave a, that was a command, by the way, in verse 11. This man didn't obey. This man is disobedient in his master's absence. And so what does the master call him? He calls him wicked, doesn't he? See in verse 22? You wicked servant. He doesn't say, well, you prudent man. Well, that was prudent. At least I didn't lose my money. 
Oh, you were cautious. You were a cautious servant. Well, at least I didn't lose it. He didn't say, you wicked. Why wicked? Because he was commanded to do something by his master. He was a steward of his master's money, and he did not obey. And thus he is called wicked. Now look at verse 24. So here's what the master says. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. Again, showing that he's not an austere person. He's not a cheapskate. He's very generous. He gives it to the other guy. Now look at the crowd's reaction. Verse 25. Very interesting. But they said to him, Master, he already has ten minas. That's not fair. Why should he have another one? And they're right. The first guy does have already have ten. Plus rule over ten cities. It's not fair. It's certainly not just to give the other guy the bad servants money. If he were just, you know what he'd do? What the master did? He'd keep it for himself, wouldn't he? Oh, it's my mina. I'm going to put it back in my pocket. Give me that mina. But the fact that he gives it to the other man proves that he's generous. That he's a gracious person. Proving that that third servant, again, is nothing more than a liar. Does that make sense? <clears throat> and notice there's a parenthesis around that verse. See that verse 25, a parenthesis? Sort of interjection. Uh, Luke puts it in there as an interjection. And uh, you can actually read 24 and go right to 26 without skipping a beat. And uh, verse 26 explains verse 24. He said to those who stood by, take the meaning from him and give it to the guy who has ten. For I say, verse 26, that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And that's a principle that Jesus introduced by the way, back in chapter 8 and verse 18. You don't need to turn there, but you need to make note of that. In other words, what he's saying is if you don't make use with the resources that God has given you, this is the spiritual lesson in a sense, if you don't make resources, uh, use of the resources you have, you're going to lose it. See, it's not enough to be the hearer of the word. We must be a doer of the word. Now this man heard, take the money and Make me a prophet while I'm gone. He heard that. He was a hearer of the word. Was he a doer of the word? No. So either you will use the resources that you have, or you will lose the resources that you have when the nobleman comes back as a king. So what this shows me is this man doesn't fear the master at all. The master said, make me some money in my... Absence, and what does he do? Does he make him some money? Does he take care of business? He puts the money in an old rag and just puts it down and forgets about it. He doesn't fear the master. Let me tell you, if the master told me to make money, I'd do whatever I could to make money if I really feared him. Shows you this man has no fear whatsoever of the master. Just like Judas is scared. 
He certainly didn't fear his master, did he? He was stealing and doing everything else. He doesn't obey the master. He doesn't have respect for the master. He doesn't fear the master. And the master calls him a wicked servant. Which, by the way, this parable has a parallel in Matthew 25. Where Jesus says, Thou wicked servant, be cast into the lake of fire. Reserved for the devil and his angels. So, the Matthew 25 passage labels this third servant as a person who's lost and faces the judgment and is cast into the lake of fire, while the other two servants rule with the master in his new kingdom. Now look at verse 27. Now we have accountability, not only of the servants, now we have accountability of group number two, the citizens. The nobleman's returned, he's now a king. And he says, but bring here those enemies of mine. That's the citizens. Who do not want me to reign over them. <clears throat> and here's what they get. Slay them before me. Put them to death. And so, if this third group, if this group represents the religious leaders, those Jewish leaders who oppose Jesus, uh, then this is the response that they will get. They will be slain. Now, look back. Zacchaeus. He shows Jesus hospitality. He saved. This group shows Jesus hostility. They're slain. The backward look and the forward look. So these people are slain. Now, if this parable really refers to Jesus, which we believe that it does, he goes to heaven and he receives his kingdom and there's a delay and he comes back. And you know Revelation 19, he's on a white horse. And it says, there proceeds out of his mouth the word of God and it slays his enemies. And so, in a sense, this parable becomes a picture of prophecy and what's going to happen at the Lord's return. Now, let me give you a couple lessons from this section here. Okay, I'll give you three or four lessons. Lesson number one from this parable defines for us what faith actually is. This parable defines the nature of faith. Faith means faithfulness. Faith means faithfulness. Not walking an aisle back then and never doing anything the rest of your life. Faith means obedience. Faithlessness means disobedience. So from this parable, we are given basically a description of faith. Faith is obedience. Faithlessness is disobedience. Second of all, the parable explains our responsibilities during the interim period, uh, between Jesus' ministry on earth. Stage one of Jesus' ministry on earth was when he came and he walked those three years and did those kingdom things. Stage two is when he comes back on earth and he rules in his fullness. What are our responsibilities between those two periods? Now, in this parable, it was about how the servants used the meanness. 
<laughs> but guess what? This isn't about me. This, this isn't about money even. This is about what you do with the resources Christ has given you until he returns. Do you use those resources for the master? Or since he's gone, do you just simply say, eh, I have no responsibility whatsoever. I walked in awe when I was 16. Something like that. In other words, will we obey the commands that he gave us? Has Christ given us commands of things that we should do in his actions? I think he has, hasn't he? One, he said, go into the world and preach the gospel. Lo, I'm with you always. He said that. He said, love one another. He's given us a lot of commands. And these are the commands that we, as <coughs> those who profess him as our master, are to follow. I believe, in a sense, that the interim period is a period of testing. It tests our mettle, whether we are the real McCoy, whether we're really servants of Jesus, or whether we're only saying we're servants of Jesus. In this parable, two pass the test, and probably eight do not pass the test. If the third man represents the others. So about 20% pass. I think that's probably about a good average. People who say they that Jesus is their master, probably two out of ten in our midst and amongst all the Christian churches of the world probably will pass the test. Jesus, in the parable of the soils, had 25% pass the test. He says, when I come back, only a few will be saved. So uh, there are a lot of... Uh, Indicate, this is a warning passage, really, in a sense, that uh, we need to uh, make sure that we pass the test. And then finally, I think that this parable gives us hope. Hope in the midst of delay. <clears throat> when uh, Luke writes it, it's 60 A.D., now it's 2009 A.D. 60 A.D., he'd only been gone for 30 years. And they were starting to say, is he ever going to come back? Maybe he's really not the Messiah. Maybe we should abandon the faith. Mockers came and said, oh, when's he coming back? Well, now he's been gone 2,000 years. Is he ever going to come back? Hey, this parable tells us something. He is coming back. And there's hope. For those of us who are obedient, there's hope. And in the case of the first servant and the second servant, it shows us what the future will be like for those who remain faithful. The first servant and the second servant show us what the future will be like for those who are faithful. What is the future for those of us who will be faithful? We will rule and we will reign with Jesus Christ. Christ is going to receive the kingdom. He's going to come back. He's going to separate the wheat from the tares that look like Christians, but really aren't. There'll be that separation. That's the first and second and third servant. And then he will slay all of his enemies. And he will set up his kingdom on earth. And we will rule and reign with him. And so this passage should motivate us to serve him faithfully during the delay. And then look at verse 28. Notice verse 20. Let's look at verse 28. It says, when he had said this, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. So the parable starts off with near Jerusalem, and it ends with him going up to Jerusalem. And uh, with this understanding in mind, he now 
enters the town of Jerusalem, right toward the town of Jerusalem, and he's now going to go in with a triumphal entry. Everyone saying, set up your kingdom now! They never got it. They never got it. And as he rides on that donkey, he really knows that he's not setting up the kingdom. What he's actually going to do is face his death, trusting God to raise him, and only then will he go to the far country to receive his kingdom. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> Help us not to be hearers of the word, but doers. Help us to look at ourselves and say, what camp do we fit into? Are we like the first and second servant? Or like the third servant? Or are we enemies and we don't want Jesus to rule over us? Do we have, are we willfully disobedient toward him? Do we have an animosity toward him, a hostility toward him? Oh Lord, this parable lays out the entire future scenario. <coughs> what will happen to those who serve him and don't serve him or only profess him with their mouth during this interim? And then it lays out the preferred future of how we will rule and reign. Lord, help us to be in that category. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.